1: To get started, visit plushcare.com weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to The Lundown. This week marks our birthday. The Lundown has been going for one whole year. To celebrate this milestone, we are releasing this very special bonus episode. Last week, Finn Harper, Merlin Fulcher and myself, Poppy Waring, sat down to record a roundtable discussion all about the show we've crafted over the past year. We discussed the Lundown's genesis, why we created the show and some of our favourite moments and some of the most interesting stories we've covered over the past year. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in, listening, subscribing and sharing the show. And especially thanks to those of you who support us through the Flat White campaign. We really couldn't do this without you.
2: Should we just do a, 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 an intro to of like who we all are?
1: I'm Poppy, Poppy Wearing. I'm the sort of behind the scenes person that, that doesn't appear very often, but i I write the script every week, um, book the guests, uh, edit the show. I sit in on the recordings, so I'm the sort of silent presence in the uh, in the in the podcast each week. There would be no London without your work, Poppy. <laughs>
0: Merlin, who are you? What do you do at the show? Uh, my name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm the head of tours at Open City, but I'm also the, a host of uh, Lundown, the Lundown Show. You hear my voice uh, if you listen to the show. And um, I'm also a, an architectural journalist. I'm competitions editor for the Architects Journal and Architectural Review. And I've, um, yeah, background in journalism, but also in tour guiding and organising tours and developing all kinds of cool things. Uh, My name is
2: Finn. I work at Open City. Um, You hear my
0: voice every
2: show right at the end. That's the bit where I'm like, we get no public money. So if you like what we do, give us some of your money and then we can keep doing it. Because London is free. Open House Festival is free. Like so much what Open City does is free. And that's only possible because of... um, All our amazing donors and supporters. So yeah, like literally almost a year ago to the day, we launched a podcast called The Lundown. I think I was the first guest. Merlin was the first host. And um, a year on, we've done this show pretty much every week, except for like Christmas, uh, on the clock. We've had an enormous range of guests, um, politicians, critics, architects, leaders in their fields uh unheard of voices before like platforms some kind of new people we've covered hundreds of 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 stories uh and every single time it's been kind of breaking news but like what, what what is it all about like what do you think of it one year on
1: editing this show for for me has been such a learning curve from not having a background in architecture like an academic background in architecture hearing from all these people and obviously I get to hear the long cut of uh the show so we usually record for about an hour and uh, it gets edited down into a half an hour episode and to 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 hear from this wide range of voices what have you what like
2: <laughs> what have you noticed like what what um what are architecture people like as an outsider
1: well so i come from Uh, a science background and I see a lot of parallels between science and architecture and the way that um, they're both seen as very sort of insular fields Mm. and it's quite hard to break through that barrier to access a a general audience because, well, both the perception, the public perception of architecture, of science, and then architects, scientists aren't very good at trying to uh, step over that boundary and create that connection and ma- and make the public realize how relevant all these fields are to their everyday lives which which aren't necessarily apparent before before entering the world of architecture i didn't really pay that much attention to yeah. how how the built environment affects my life and yet it affects you in like almost
2: all the time every waking and sleeping moment of your life yeah. is profoundly impacted by the built environment, your economic conditions are impacted by the built environment. Um, the future of the planet is impacted by the built environment. Like It's funny how this sort of enormous, very important, very serious stuff is like people are like, oh, I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> that's, that's something that I can just leave to the professionals or something. <laughs> that's not important to me, Joe Public.
0: I guess when I think about where London com- had come from, it's like we've been playing around with podcasting and thinking, how can we use this amazing medium to like explain the city or explain really interesting topics that would appeal to people and get people more confident in talking about built environment or architecture, and then sort of realise that you know, what was the dream podcast we wanted to listen to, or what would be something that would build on our. Um, some of the abilities and the insights were at our fingertips and thought, well, what about news? Like, why can't we just talk about news? But in the way that, like, sometimes there'll be some big project gets planning permission or something in London and everyone's like, well, that means that. Well, what does it mean? You know, like, th- that thing is going to be demolished or like, what are these towers or what is this, like, mode of producing city or spending money on or designing? And realize that if we could get in a voice, maybe a voice who wasn't an architect, to then tell that story or break it apart and make it really accessible and easy to understand that that could be actually something that's really really valuable to a lot of people probably also really valuable to me like I I want to hear that (laughs) you know I want to hear what someone who isn't in our world who isn't an architectural journalist but maybe is linked to that what do they think of this thing
2: yeah it's funny there's a lot of stuff in architectural culture making or like discourse right there's all these magazines um, there's lots of there's lots of podcasts at the, actually out there, and lots of kind of public events happening. But so many of them seem to be like rooted in quite a kind of intellectual, academic, slow form of like discourse. Which is, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But like, it's it's it's, it's certainly a, a very big trend that like you don't talk about breaking news. You talk about you know the canon, and you talk about these great figures and and the legacies of. Uh, of great architects and you talk about these kind of systemic profession-wide issues many of which are super important right but like rarely do they intersect with our kind of day-to-day lived experience um, on a kind of week-by-week basis and I think that that has a a few problems (laughs) or causes a few problems one of which is it means that architects are just like completely absent from uh, public debate about um, current affairs, you know, when was the last time you heard a, a, an engineer or an architect on, on question time or on Newsnight? It very, very rarely happens.
0: I mean, the most recent thing I saw Jonathan Meads on Newsnight saying something about a shopping centre, and it was, and he's, a, he's a critic, and it was really brief, and that was like a year ago or more.
2: Right, yeah, exactly. And yet, as you know, the, the built environment affects so much, so like if you're talking about housing crisis, if you're talking about the cost of living crisis, if you're talking about migration, if you're talking about... Um, uh, kind of the green belt. like These are all like extremely urban issues. You'd have thought that built environment professionals, architects, engineers, planners, blah, 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 would be like the first people that producers call when they're putting together a kind of papers review on Sky News or or, Radio 4 or whatever. One of the things I think London is trying to do or like I want it to try and do um, is to sort of skill up our community so that we... So you don't need London anymore because like, there are built environment professionals on Radio 4 all day, every day, talking about the big issues facing all of us and how design and how architecture can intersect with those issues in an in a, in a accessible and communicative and persuasive way.
0: Yeah, it rather reminds me of, we did a show with Edwin Heathcote from the Financial Times, and we were talking about Oxford Circus, this competition to redesign Oxford Circus. We say, well, why is Oxford Circus always treated so badly in London? He described it as like this, it's treated as like a gutter for people to flow through, and the retail space is just treated as like a, a rentable asset rather than a cultural uh, phenomena, And I thought, how many times have I listened to the most boring discussions on politics t- or on BBC News about the death of the high street, right? And Edwin's literally just given me the most interesting description of the death of the high street.
2: Yeah, that's, that's an incredibly precise diagnosis of the problem with Oxford Street. Whereas you've got an economist on, and they just talk about I don't know net-to-gross ratio and like internet. They, they wouldn't be able to see the problem in spatial terms or cultural
0: terms. So I guess that's where London came along. Basically, there was no one else doing it. Um, and it turned out it was actually quite a fun thing, because what do you do? You pick four or five stories a week... Um, obviously, I've got a background in journalism, so it was something that I was following anyway. The um, yeah, the media partnership with AJ was like a big moment for us, I, I, as well as working for Open City. I worked for the Architects Journal as their competitions editor, and um, I, I, I mean, on the on the point of journalism, like yeah, you know, we live in an era where yeah, you know, there's a lot of money and power in a small number of hands, right? And that seems to be coming more and more so. Like, what does a journalist or a news journalist do? Like, their job is to challenge power and challenge these forces. Um, and there's, like, a tiny number of them. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, not many people would invest several thousand pounds in in buying like multiple subscriptions to a news service or a magazine but they might invest tens of thousand pounds a year in a public in a publicity or a pr firm or something like that and so it it can feel like a bit of a losing battle being a journalist because um there are so few journalists um so uh yeah it does it does seem like a time when to celebrate that and to be able to sort of to, to center stage great journalism in a news review show um, says yeah says, says the value of that
1: yeah. yeah I think the show does a very good job of putting the news under scrutiny we we ask difficult questions of our guests and we do prompt our guests to be really critical of what's going on and I think, because we're a small charity, you know, we don't have a big funder above us that's telling us what to do. We are able to um, bring these issues to the forefront. We're able to talk about what some people may think of as small issues that are very local issues that may only affect a local community, but we platform that to our listeners, to, to our sphere of people. And um, we, we scrutinise what's happening, um, what big companies are doing in London, in and around London, even on a global scale, that things that do affect London.
2: I wanted to ask you guys, um, like, what, in a year, of, a year of producing this stuff, like 50 shows or something crazy like that, like, are there any standout moments? Who's been your favourite guest?
1: Um, Always enjoy having Kath Lesser on. Oh, my God. What oh a legend.
2: <laughs> if, you know, if you're listening to this and you haven't yet listened to a Kath Lesser episode, go back and find one. They're so she, she does so much prep. She, like, thinks mm. through, like, she comes with, like, several, like, bang-in one-liners for every single story. And then, like, really takes you through it in, in quite a lot of detail. But with this, like, flare and this kind of twinkle in her eye. I mean, she's, like, been a journalist for a, for a long time at the AJ, then the AR. Yeah, there's there's few people in the industry who are as, as articulate and precise and funny and, like, dry as Kath uh, skewering someone like Tom Heatherwick or the Marble Arch Mound.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that first show we record with Kath, it was just like, yes, this <laughs> is, like, taking it exactly where we want it to go. It was on that, the Marble Arch Mound. Uh, I think for me, um, I, re- I really enjoyed talking with Iden Dickenden about uh, Nine Elms. Uh, so obviously I'd grown up in Battersea, so it's like an area very close to my heart. Because
2: he's a counsellor in Battersea, isn't he? Yeah.
0: And he was just he's just written a piece in Tribune uh, about Nine Elms, which basically just like really described it in robust terms. Uh, I also really enjoyed talking to Ruth Lang because um, we got to talk about cycling which mm, is another thing that's really close to mm, my heart but then I sort of also realised the thing that links those two is like the South London thread and it reminds me of like the London Live we did at South London Gallery mm. um, so it was with Nana Biyamo Fusu and uh, Hetty O'Brien and um, I literally just picked like all South London stories and I was like nodding to the people from South like are you noticing this we've got a South London special
2: how do you pick stories I mean I'm involved in this too a bit but like the two of you kind of leave it like what what makes a good london story
0: i think something that can be explained something that which isn't immediately apparent something which you can have an opinion on i think a lot of the things like as londoners like transport is a big issue cycling and travel uh, air quality like these are sort of big issues which the built environment has a factor in that then uh, you can unpack all of this stuff in a kind of social justice sense um gentrification there's a lot like if there's a story about that or if it's about it Kind of flaring up on social media because then you can unpack it and relate back some of the consequences of the development industry and the social uh, interpretation of them.
1: Last week with Sadie Morgan, we talked about the cost of living crisis, which is a national story. I mean, everyone's talking about it at the moment, but be able to cover these massive stories through the lens of our city, how does it affect London, and how, from that, like, architectural perspective taking a new stance on the news that isn't the the, it's a slant that isn't necessarily held on the BBC News or I don't know the Guardian or Sky or wherever you get your news from Um, and I really feel like covering those stories helps transcend that boundary between like architecture news and the rest of the world. But, yeah, um,
2: yeah. I thought that the the show is Sadie. You know, she, she's she's um, she's a commissioner on the National Infrastructure Commission, and uh, quite a celebrated architect. And we were going to her with the, the the cost of living crisis, which is a story the mainstream media covers, but they cover it in terms of like what are shells, energy profits. This is about like household heating bills. Um, could the Chancellor do more to you know, they don't talk about insulation. they don't talk about like the built environment solutions to this national crisis. And that's because of this problem that like, architects and, and built environment people just are not present in public discourse as much as they should be. If you know if I was a producer at Sky News or BBC or whatever you'd think okay, heating bills are going up. We need, you know, a retrofit expert on the show. Like, let's get in someone who knows about insulation who can explain to us how how we as a, a country can kind of upgrade the insulation of all of our buildings. But that's not where their mind goes because that's not, you know, we're not good enough at getting on in their, their zone. So instead, they get an economist in, talk about the wholesale price of energy. They get, like, a foreign office person in talks about, like, Russia controlling pipelines through the Ukraine and stuff and it all gets a bit like hang on hang on we, this is a this is about double glazing right this is not about foreign policy <laughs> this is about upgrading insulation on our appallingly leaky Victorian terraces in like the outskirts of Birmingham or the outskirts of Ealing or whatever um and, it's, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do here is, is, is like foreground the built environment as part of the solution to all of these big problems.
0: And, and then also scrutinize it as well, because I, I, one of the things I find is there is this kind of An Randian streak in development and architecture where it's like, I've got the money, I've got the power, I'm going to do this and I'm free to do it. And I think the classic one is um, the tulip. It's just sort of like, well, I've got this vision and I want to build it. And like a very famous architect got behind it and the thing nearly got approved. Uh, But then it got turned around. Uh, And I think being able to sort of critique it and give voices and like bring together all of that criticism in one place is something which sometimes is lacking because it's just this idea of, well, you know, if somebody wants to build the shard and they've got the money to make it happen, then it will happen. Um, And there's a sort of feeling that that is maybe the way the society should be and actually maybe that isn't you know and the same thing came across with like the marble arch mound i mean obviously that wasn't a super powerful backer that was a council but it was a similar kind of logic of like you know here's this idea we're gonna stridently go ahead with it and not really like factor in any kind of um response even before it was built with people saying this looks a bit dubious
1: Yeah, what were were some of the stories that we revisited again and again throughout the year?
0: Well, uh, it's less of a a single
2: story, but like a theme that we kept coming back to was demolition. Mm. And London is addicted to to demolition. Certain local authorities in particular, or certain councillors at certain local authorities in particular, just can't seem to see any other way of achieving whatever their goals are than like knocking stuff down, which as we have talked about multiple times over the last year, is a huge problem because demolition is so polluting. It's polluting in its own right, but then if you build something else to replace whatever you've demolished, that's also very polluting. So, you know, we should demolish stuff, but, like, very, very occasionally and very, in very exceptional circumstances. So we had stories like Lambeth trying to knock down Cressingham Gardens.
0: That was our very first story on London literally the very first episode if you go back and listen yeah. to them, me and you just, and it was on last week's show as well we've, we've, it just keeps on coming back And it's
2: just so obviously a terrible idea all the residents are opposed to it like it, the carbon impacts of that would be enormous but they keep coming back to try and knock it down and then a bit later in the year we had um marks and spencer's trying to like knock down their like flagship store on 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 oxford street and replace it with another flagship store it just feels like there's the, the, the kind of theme of the year has been trying to cast a bit of a spotlight on um, sort of terrible demolition led strategies.
0: And there was the story, um, was it Century House or the one in Bow?
2: Oh, well, OK. So, yeah, that, this is a story that's going to go for a bit, I think. You know, it's a Clare House, which is a um, tower, residential tower, council housing managed by a housing association and then literally overnight the residents get this 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 sort of letter saying you've all got to move out within a week because we we reckon there's there's something wrong with the building some sort of a fire risk we're not going to tell you what it is but you've got to leave and um sure enough they all get evicted it's like total chaos they're put into temporary housing but it's like really patchy really like dodgy process of course the building is still there like it's 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 really quite suspicious what's going on there and you, you you kind of wonder like what what is the game plan like why have they not just explained what this problem is why is that secret and what are they going to like solve it but like not move the people back in so they can they can because this tower overlooks victoria park very kind of nice part of town and you could totally imagine um a nefarious operator using the excuse of fire safety to like very aggressively gentrify this tower if that if i'm not saying that is their game plan but like the way that they've gone about this eviction is so suspicious and so weird and so um violent towards the the residents whose whose um, lives have been turned upside down as a lot of it that it just feels wrong feels really wrong and that's something that you you know there are journalists looking into it but there there really ought to be more and i feel like london could play a bit of a role in trying to follow that story
1: we've been doing this podcast for about a year now um the podcast is all about london What, what what's happened in london over the past year have we noticed any any significant changes? Have has London progressed regressed? Like what 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 would you say has happened over the past year?
2: I mean, the stuff that's changed this year, like we, it seems like the the industry is having a bit of um, a kind of road to the Damascus moment on embodied carbon. Like for a very very long time, um, when people were talking about sustainable architecture, they were talking about um, uh, like low uh operational energy so like um really well insulated um buildings that took a a very small amount of energy to heat or cool and that was the conversation about sustainable architecture which was not a bad conversation but it missed out this enormous enormous chunk of the problem which is the the amount of energy and carbon it takes to build a building And so many of the... There's a lot of material that goes into building a building, but there's also a lot of like highly protest, high-carbon material. Um, And it does feel like this year, and to some extent last year, but this year in particular, people have really got a lot more articulate about this stuff, about embodied carbon. and, And the idea that sometimes the most ecological move you can make as an architect is to not build anything, but to just like upgrade what is already there to like tweak it, to adjust it, to like rework bits and pieces of it, to add insulation, to sort of, um, so architecture potentially is entering this like quite exciting new era of like upgrade first and and then like demolish and rebuild is like a kind of last resort. If you can't figure it out through through an upgrade strategy.
0: And and I think, like, when I started out as a journalist in, like, 2010, I remember writing retrofit articles, like, retrofit being the future, and then suddenly there was, like, a whole wave of, like, high-profile demolitions, and, you know, it was like, people were saying that 10 years ago, but it just didn't stick in the way that now it's kind of come back, and in part, like, you know, put AJ in the retro first campaign, like, this work that Will Hurst, the managing editor of AJ, is doing, like... It's like, it's not, like, that cat is out of the bag. Like, retrofit is just not, you cannot push it back down now. Like, it is there. Like, it's as an alternative to that demolition rebuild. I think one of the threads that we've also really consistently focused on, I think pretty much every episode, we've talked about housing, and we've talked about public housing, and we've talked about the fact that, you know, what is the most socially, environmentally, economically form of, sustainable form of housing? It's social housing um and i just don't think that that a decade ago that really was not u- as universally seen as it is right now and i think that's one thing that we've really we've really pushed for in london and i think that that is something which more and more people uh, are seeing as um as a reality
2: all the, all the other options are kind of um, the emperor's lack of clothes is, is gradually being revealed through all, all the, the many kind of wacky alternatives that people have been proposing, like schemes like the collective, schemes like help to buy, schemes like, you know, government-backed deposit on your mortgage for first-time buyers. Um, it's gradually becoming clearer and clearer that like no matter how elaborate your um, your policy maneuver is, um, it's just not as good as build some houses, rent them to people at a, like a, a low rate forever. Like that, that's, that's the best. Um, and that is what people mean by social housing. That's, that's like the essence of social housing, like socially rented homes.
0: Yeah, I mean, to illustrate it, like we covered a story recently about the Bank of England saying that the cladding crisis was a material risk to the financial stability of the United Kingdom. Property is such an important part of our economy and our financial settlement um, that a big chunk of it, that a new build which had been subsidised through this help to buy stuff, potentially could all collapse if it was worth nothing, if you could never resell it because the cladding was faulty, right? But that could never happen in a situation where an owner was not. Um, taking that risk on personally, individually. If you could collectively own it all and just remedy the problem, nobody, nobody risks losing their entire personal assets. Um, but that's, you know, we're in the situation where housing is, is presented as a personal problem rather than a universal one, which we all know it isn't.
2: Yeah, it's an infrastructure problem. It's like um, if we thought of uh, traveling from one city to another city as something you just had to figure out on your own... Without you know a motorway, without a train line, without um the, the 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 sort of the enormous societal systems that we have made to enable people to move from cities to other cities then then we'd have a terrible country you know you no one would be able to get anywhere it would be a disaster and we need to think of housing in the same terms as we think of travel like the of course you need massive, massive expensive solutions like. So to build one mile of motorway costs tens of millions of pounds per mile. It's something like 60 million quid per mile of motorway. They're extremely expensive things to build. That's because they need to be because infrastructure is expensive and that cost pays for itself over a long period of time by the, the many thousands and thousands of people who will use that motorway. Housing is exactly the same. Like It should be extremely expensive. There should be loads of it. And it won't pay for itself on day one, but over time it will pay for itself and it will make a better society that is more fun and more equitable to live in. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Here endeth the lesson.
1: (laughs) That seems like a good place to finish. But before we wrap up, maybe we should say something about our listeners. Excuse me, we have listeners
0: from all over the world. Hello to our listeners from Japan, all 78 of them.
2: Two from Senegal this week, I think. So, you know, it's getting out there. And I think that is to the credit of of you guys, Merlin, Poppy, the, the amazing guests we've had. Some of the other hosts, Rachel, Siroz Zoe. Um, but it's also to the listeners, right? If you're, you know, it's you... Telling your friends about it, telling people, uh, your, your company about it, pra- your practice about it, um, tweeting about it, putting on Instagram.
0: Buying us a flat white.
2: But Yeah, I mean, there's tw- 22 people,
0: yeah. I think. Absolute legends. Those coffees taste great. They're the best coffees I've ever had in my I mean, life. It's, you know, 22 we're not going to
2: retire on 22 flat whites. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless we're like Kirsty also and we can buy a house with it. But yeah. um, <laughs> it's it means so much to us that... Um, there are people out there in the world who are who are appreciating this show and supporting the show, and whether they're sharing it amongst their peers or they're chipping in a bit of cash to help us make the show every week, it's 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 so special and so important. So um, thank you to everybody who's who's listened to subscribed, and it's extra thanks to those who've shared it in their their kind of peer group or or even chipped in. Really cool. Yes listening to the London, a show from open city rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in london if you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed we recommend subscribing to the architect's journal which has covered all these issues and many more too you can find the show on twitter or instagram at, at @OpenCityLondon, or by using the hashtag londown lnd Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk/slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible, and equitable city.